0: Section 15 of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7. The Years of Opposition, Part 3. Fortunately for both parties, the necessity for a decision never arose. Ireland, following the arguments of Fox, recognized the prince as regent in his own right. In England, pitt's bill vesting the regency in the prince but placing the whole management of the king's person and household in the hands of the queen and restricting very considerably the patronage exercised by the regent passed the commons and was before the lords when the king recovered had it passed and had the prince in accordance with his expressed intention dismissed pitt summoned to his councils fox and the duke of portland and dissolved parliament the result would not improbably have somewhat disillusioned the Whig leaders. There is good reason to believe that the country, in the full flow of its sympathy for the King and its indignant contempt for the Prince, with its deep-rooted suspicion of Fox, unappeased and unappeasable, would have inflicted upon the Whigs a chastisement so severe as almost to wipe them out of existence as a political party among those who played the sorriest of the parts in the regency question was thurlow the lord chancellor he had ever been among the stoutest of the henchmen of the king and had acted as detective on behalf of the king in the ministry of rockingham but there was one thing he valued more than the king and that was the woolsack he had got accustomed to it had grown to it in the course of so many years and could not bear the thought of having to surrender it to loughborough if the whigs came in fortunately for him what sir g eliot finally calls his table qualities had endeared him to the prince of wales and this gave him an opportunity of standing well with both sides when the king was first taken ill thurlow made up his mind that recovery was hopeless and at once put himself into communication with the prince and the duke of portland secret interviews were held and pledges given and it soon began to be whispered on the ministerial side that the Chancellor was playing false. Much amusement was caused one day after a cabinet council by the conduct of a page, who having been sent in search of Thurlow's hat, which was not to be found, at last brought the missing article into the room where the ministers were assembled with the naive but compromising remark, My lords, I found it in the closet of the Prince of Wales. When Fox returned from Italy, he found it practically settled, that Thurlow was to retain the woolsack, and there was nothing left for him but to acquiesce. I have swallowed the pill he wrote to Sheridan, and a most bitter one it was. I do not remember ever feeling so uneasy about any political thing I ever did in my life. As the king's health improved, however, so did Thurlow's loyalty. He ceased his visits to the prince, he became an ardent admirer of the Regency bill when it was certain that the king would recover, his zeal knew no bounds. Going down to the house of lords, he drew a picture of the king in his affliction which touched all hearts. Then, bursting into a flood of tears, he allowed himself to be carried away in a paroxysm of exuberant loyalty, and finished an impassioned peroration with the exclamation, When I forget my king, may my God forget me. Forget you, muttered Burke, who stood near the best thing that could happen to you forget you repeated wilkes with more wit than reverence he will see you damned first pitt never forgot the hypocrisy of this scene and took the earliest opportunity of placing the great seal in safer hands the following epitaph one of the most pungent lampoons which ever destroyed a reputation shows the estimation in which the chancellor's character was generally held at the time To the memory of Thurlow. Here lies beneath the prostituted mace a patriot with but one base wish, place. Here lies beneath the prostituted purse a peer with but one talent, how to curse. Here lies beneath the prostituted gown the guardian of all honor but his own. Statesman with but one rule his steps to guide, to shun the sinking, take the rising side judge with but one base law to serve the time and see in wealth no weakness power no crime christian with but one value for the name the scoffer's prouder privilege to blaspheme britain with but one hope to live a slave and dig in deathless infamy his grave if the Regency question was the most interesting, it was certainly not the most useful of the subjects which claimed the attention of Fox in Parliament during the ten years which elapsed between the overthrow of the Coalition and the outbreak of the Great War. During his whole political career, Fox had never wavered in his unqualified support of the removal of religious disability, the reform of the House of Commons, and the abolition of the slave trade but it is clear from his published utterances that the three subjects appealed in a very different way to his mind and heart parliamentary reform he had inherited as an acknowledged part of the whig policy ever since george the third had shown that the conditions of an unreformed house of commons were as favourable for the maintenance of tory as they had been of Whig ascendancy. It was a subject which the opposition naturally took up when kept out of office by aristocratic or kingly influence. It was a subject that they as naturally dropped when that influence was on their side. Fox never seems to have thoroughly understood the importance of the subject or appreciated its bearing upon national liberty and progress even the disasters of the wilkes case and of the american war only taught him the evils of corruption not of faulty representation and he had no scruples in seventeen eighty three in pressing the wishes of an unrepresentative house of commons against the obvious wishes of the people pitt was the only statesman of that generation who really saw something of the deeper issues of the question But after 1785, when the existing system seemed to be producing such excellent results, and any attempt to alter it boded such indefinite dangers, he was quite content to soothe his conscience to sleep by the time-honoured opiate of Walpole's maxim, Quieta non movere." The truth is, reform is essentially an opposition question no government as long as it is strong in parliament and popular in the constituencies is likely to be very anxious to try experiments an opposition on the contrary in the position of the opposition of 1784 had every motive for energy they had a great stain to wipe off their political escutcheon they had a great defeat to avenge they had every reason to welcome political experiments for they could not be worse off than they were It is true that some members of the party, like Burke, were opposed to any measure of reform, but they were very few in number. If Fox had had his heart in the question, he would never have rested until he had forced his rival from his retreat, or have torn his weapons out of his feeble and unwilling hands, and used them against him with deadly effect. But Fox did neither of these things he took no action whatever between the abandonment of the cause by Pitt in 1785 and its revival under the influence of the French Revolution by Flood in 1790. In that year he supported Flood by a short and languid speech. In 1791 he again allowed the question to drop, and in 1792 resigned it permanently to Gray and the Society of the Friends of the People, although he disapproved of the society himself, refused to become a member of it, and must have known perfectly well that in the exasperated state of public opinion, the only result of permitting the society to monopolize reform would be to unite the whole Tory party in blind opposition to the question, and postpone indefinitely all possibility of settling it on a fair and reasonable basis. There was at that time, no subject of more vital importance to the well-being of england than that of parliamentary reform that its solution was postponed to a date at which it could not fail to bring with it some of the evils of a revolution was due almost as much to the indolence of fox as to the selfishness of pitt in the various attempts made between seventeen eighty-three and seventeen ninety three to remove religious disabilities fox played a more generous part the idea of freedom from personal restriction formed a large part of his conception of liberty his thoughts on the due relations of church and state had never been profound or comprehensive he moved with but slightly greater ease in the atmosphere of religion than he did in that of finance a comparison of his speeches on these subjects with those of burke discloses at a glance the whole difference between the views of a man who has studied a problem with an intense desire to arrive at the true solution and has an intimate and heartfelt sympathy with the subject-matter of his thought and the judgment of a clear forcible and powerful mind brought to bear upon an unaccustomed subject the full bearings of which it does not and perhaps does not care to wholly understand. Fox fully grasped the principle of religious toleration. That anyone should be prevented by law from worshipping God in his own way, provided, of course, there was no outrage of public order or decency, was hateful to his mind. He laid down the broad principle that the State has nothing to do with the opinions, but only with the actions of men. He supported with all his energy The Catholic Relief Acts of 1778 and 1791, and himself brought the religious grievances of the Unitarians before Parliament in 1792. But the doctrine of religious toleration was not seriously disputed. Pitt himself was responsible for the Relief Act in 1791, and the bishops supported it as eagerly as Fox. Even Lord North, now infirm and blind, Had himself carried down to the house to speak in favour of the unitarians and the bill was only lost because the commons agreed with burke that they were really quite as much a revolutionary political faction as they were a religious body on the much more serious question of the admission to offices in the state of persons opposed to the religion of the state fox never really faced the difficulties of his own position he had an amiable desire that everybody should have what they wanted. He thought it absurd and unreasonable to deprive the king of the services of able and loyal men because of their religious opinions. He had a very natural and just abhorrence of the particular test imposed upon nonconformists by the legislation of Charles II, which excluded the conscientious, put no hindrance in the way of the sacrilegious, and placed a very unfair burden upon the consciences of the clergy. His own view of the church was that put forward by Hoadley at the beginning of the century and adopted by Walpole and the Whigs. In the language of the 18th century, it was the low-church view, and in modern days would be termed Erastian. According to this view, the church was merely a state organization for the teaching of morality upon a religious basis. Its functions were to inculcate good and reprove evil. And the more reasonably and moderately it discharged these functions, the more splendid appeared its reputation to the eyes of Fox. It was the sanction of the state which gave its authority to the church, and even apparently secured the truth of its teaching. I will ever commend, he once cried with a momentary aberration into nonsense, the enlightened policy of the time of the Union which allowed both the kirk in scotland and the hierarchy in england to be religions equally true equally true certainly no act of parliament could make them but what he meant no doubt was equally the religion of the state for his argument was that if the state thus recognised authoritatively two religions within its borders it could not logically object to be served by those who differed in religion the test and corporation acts accordingly seemed to him as simply acts of persecution imposed by a dominant party in the interests of monarchy with the more enlightened views of the eighteenth century all excuse for such persecution had passed away and fox looked forward with hope to the time when the state would have nothing to say to opinion whatever religious or irreligious and offices from the highest to the lowest should be thrown open to all, irrespective of creed. The ideal was a noble one. It was one of Fox's chief claims to be considered the founder of the new Whig Party, that he formulated so distinctly the exact meaning of the policy of religious liberty which has since been carried into effect by them. Yet it was a policy essentially incomplete, too narrow in its basis, too sectarian in its objects to be wholly successful it was the policy of an opportunist not of a statesman an opportunist imperfectly acquainted with the gravity of the problem with which he was dealing and only able to see one small part of it at a time the adjustment of the relations between church and state to the problems caused by the existence of religious division has been the most crucial question with which england has had to deal since the reformation henry the eighth and elizabeth had no doubt at all about the principle which ought to be followed it was that of the absolute oneness of church and state under the crown a principle which found its necessary and logical expression in the attempt to insist that every officer and member of the one state should also be a member of the one church the whole theory of the royal supremacy and the whole policy of religious uniformity With its long series of penal acts, rest alike upon this basis. The great and typical work of Hooker takes it as its central thought. Opposed to the popular religion of the day, the principle failed and was overthrown at the Great Rebellion. It revived at the Restoration, but the number of religious dissidents was then so great that its maintenance became intensely difficult, and the Test and Corporation Act were passed with the express object of defending it, fiction though it had grown to be. At the Revolution it underwent a modification. The principle which had succeeded so well under Richelieu in France was adopted in England, which may be shortly expressed in the formula religious toleration, state uniformity. The oneness of the Church and State was still to be maintained for the security of the State, for the preservation of continuity in the Constitution, for the dignity of the church, but liberty of conscience was to be respected in religious matters. But the proposals of Fox went to the length of sweeping away the principle altogether and establishing in its place the totally opposite one that the state is wholly apart from religion and has nothing to do with it. And he did not see that the carrying out of this principle simply by the removal of existing disabilities upon nonconformists was in reality only a half-measure of religious liberty. It left the Church still under the operation of the theory of the oneness of the Church and State, and, as the historical results of that theory, under the operation of the royal supremacy and of parliamentary control. That is to say, he left the largest religious body in England under the control of an assembly the doors of which he had just opened to his enemies, and subject to no slight extent in its administration to the supremacy of a crown, which, owing to the advance of Whig principles, was every day becoming more and more merged in Parliament. Such disabilities with regard to legislation and management were intelligible enough, and of little practical moment, when the State Legislature and Executive were bound up with the Church, they amounted to a very galling tyranny when the State legislature contained a sufficient number of the enemies of the Church to prevent it from carrying out the smallest reform in its own organization or adapting itself to the new claims which the growth of population were daily making. To maintain an established Church with the existing theory of the Royal Supremacy, after it had been established as a principle of the Constitution, That the state as such has nothing to do with religion was a contradiction in terms and an injustice in fact. Fox himself was strongly in favour of the maintenance of an established church as long as it was the church of the majority. But when he proposed to alter the whole basis upon which an established church had been dealt with since the Reformation, he ought at least to have taken care that in giving religious liberty to a minority, he was not taking it away from the majority of the nation. Fox himself never saw the completion of the work which he took over from Beaufoy in 1792. During the terror of the French Revolution, a Tory parliament was not likely to alter lightly an important constitutional principle. But it was Fox who planted this particular measure in the seed plot of Whig policy, and when the turn of the political wheel gave a majority to the Whigs, it was too late for politicians to see anything beyond the party triumph and the party obligations they carried the bill they did not solve the question in his advocacy of personal liberty fox was on safer because on more congenial grounds ever since the decisions of lord mansfield in wilkes's case the courts had continued to hold that in a case of libel it was in the province of the judge to say whether the words or writing complained of constituted a libel while the duty of the jury was confined to saying whether the alleged libel was published this doctrine seemed to most statesmen and to some lawyers notably lord camden to be seriously detrimental to the liberty of the subject and to impair the right of every englishman to be tried by his peers erskine in an eloquent speech in the dean of asaf's case drew public attention to the matter and Fox applied the proper parliamentary remedy. In 1791 he succeeded in passing through Parliament with Pitt's support, an act declaratory of the law of libel, by which it was asserted by Parliament that the jury had the power of finding a general verdict upon the whole issue as in other criminal cases. This was Fox's chief personal contribution to the statute book. It contains only four clauses, but its importance in securing personal liberty is but little less than that of the habeas corpus act itself. In his effort to procure the abolition of the slave trade, Fox is seen at his best. He far outstripped all his contemporaries except Wilberforce in Zeal, and presented in his single-hearted humanity a striking contrast to the calculating selfishness of Pitt. In his first speech on the subject, he laid down the broad principle that the slave trade must not be regulated but abolished and to this he resolutely adhered until the opportunity came for him to carry his words into effect in 1791 speaking to mr wilberforce's motion for a committee he delivered what some critics have considered the finest of his speeches in parliament there is a ring of true enthusiasm about it wholly wanting in his speeches on the test act and in it he shows clearly the reasons which led him to speak so strongly as he did no man he proudly said will suspect me of being an enemy to political freedom political freedom is undoubtedly as great a blessing as any people under heaven can pant after but political freedom when it comes to be compared with personal freedom sinks into nothing and becomes no blessing at all by comparison It is personal freedom that is now the point in question. Personal freedom must be the first object of every human being. It is a right, and he who deprives a fellow creature of it is absolutely criminal. And he who withholds when it is in his power to restore it is no less criminal in withholding. Fox had indeed declared war with his whole heart against arbitrary power exercised against individual liberty it was that which inspired his attacks upon george the third and the american war it was that which impelled him to place the aegis of parliament over the riot of india it was that which urged him in hot haste to the punishment of warren hastings it was that which made him see nothing but hope in the rising of the french peasant and triumph in the fall of the Bastille. It was a generous sentiment and it sprang from a generous and warm heart. Never was it more generously and wisely invoked than in the assault against that castle manned by selfishness and tyranny and peopled by misery and despair known as the African slave trade. I spoke, he writes to T. Grenville after the division, I believe very well, and indeed it is the thing which has given me most pleasure since I saw you. For I do think it is a cause in which one ought to be an enthusiast, and in which one cannot help being pleased with oneself for having done right End of section fifteen